This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by Amazon Studios. As award season heads into the home stretch, we reflect on the film that has been part of the conversation for over a year, Manchester by the Sea. A film is never better than when it showcases spectacular writing and acting, resulting in what many critics have called a masterpiece. Casey Affleck's performance has been the most honored of the year, with wins including the Golden Globe, National Board of Review, BAFTA, Critics' Choice, and more. Time Out says Casey Affleck joins the ranks of giants, and Rolling Stone called it acting of the highest caliber. Writer-director Kenneth Lonergan delivers the cinematic equivalent of a great American novel, says Richard Roper from the Chicago Sun-Times, and the New York Times' Manila Dargis says the film showcases Mr. Lonergan's gift with actors and for dialogue that ebbs and flows and stings like life. For more information, visit AmazonStudiosGuilds.com. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson out in Los Angeles. And Ann, we're just a little over a week away from the Oscars, but I have to tell you I'm having a hard time finding anything new to talk about, so I figured maybe we should spend some time just looking at the rest of the world. I mean, there's plenty of other things for us to focus on. We've got that crazy Donald Trump press conference dominating headlines, which feels like the movie that just won't end. And oh, but it's the, it's the talk shows that go to town with it. I mean, Stephen Colbert comparing the press conference to a steaming pile of shit, basically, you know. And, and uh, you know, he just went wild, and Jimmy Fallon did his own imitation, and it was pretty funny as well. Uh, it's it's a, Saturday Night Live is the gift that keeps on giving. Thank you, Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, it, if there was ever a time when comedy could be both cathartic and informative, it's this. It's funny to compare it to what happened with satire news shows in the Bush era, you know, the kind of rise of Jon Stewart and the, the way that parody news suddenly became a great way to just process the news. Now it's like, it's more about just giving us some way to to check ourselves, to come back to reality, you know. Well, I don't I envy journalists. politics <laughs> have taken over my Twitter feed in a way that I find interesting. They're Not always only there. Que- the question of what I'm reading, but ha- what I'm, who I'm following. I'm changing it. Like there was a there was a tweet about um, Kate McKinnon meeting with Hillary Clinton, and there was a literal photo of of them together in a New York restaurant. And I started following that White House correspondent. You know, things like that. Right. I don't envy journalists who have to just go up against Trump. 24-7 who are on Trump duty, but what's interesting about it is that it's just such an unpredictable environment because it's not being dictated, the administration is not necessarily being dictated by, you know, rational m- maneuvering, <laughs> I mean, to, to, to say the least, I mean, it's like, you know, the, the quote-unquote policy of our government is so erratic that it's less about trying to pull apart what people are doing and why it's bad than it is just sort of coming back to the real world where even if you don't agree with somebody, there has to be some sort of common ground where logic matters, you know. And that's that's what I think is kind of fascinating. It's like all of a sudden John McCain makes a lot of sense. He seems like a pretty reasonable guy. Remember those days when he was the awful opponent to Barack Obama or certainly the George lesser... relatively <laughs> civilized. I mean, he's, point, he's adorable, huh? right? <laughs> he was a, a charming idiot. You know, that's that's where we are. But... but uh, um, it's it's even scarier than than he was, and he was corrupt, and everyone knew it. So 
We shall see, but that's what's uh, just the, the constant uh, distraction from from everything. But it's the last. It's it's the last. What else are we talking about? Well, we did a story on Broad Green. Um, basically, we were tracking Buena Vista Social Club sequel from Lucy Walker, which very unusually got pulled from Sundance. Most people are trying to get into Sundance, and Lucy Walker was very happy to get into Sundance and was very unhappy when her movie got pulled. And so uh, we checked into whether there was a sort of larger pattern of behavior over it at Broad Green, and we decided there was. Well, I thought that was a good, another good story sort of in contrast to you know, the Oscar conversation, because this is a company that doesn't figure into this Oscar season conversation at all, although since it launched has had those kinds of aspirations, and it's been kind of fascinating to track, you know, whenever, whenever there's a new player, I think the natural starting place is skepticism, but if they want to spend money on movies that are actually good and filmmakers who have talent, it's something worth being excited about. And I remember when this company first came along, you got the sense that, okay, they're untested, but they certainly are well-funded because it's run by a couple of billionaire brothers. And, uh, you know, if they're going to get behind some, some good filmmakers like a Jeremy Saulnier and produce a movie like Green Room, you know, I think that's pretty cool. But then you start to hear these problems. I mean, you mentioned some of this stuff in your story, but it's they not only have they alienated themselves from a lot of filmmakers, but a lot of these movies just haven't performed. So it's it's not a surprise, per se, that there are issues with this Lucy Walker film. It's more like, you know, when is this going to stop? When, when exactly. Are... The question is, when can they do it smoothly? When can they do it right? When can they do it without there being problems? Why do they, when can they do it where they, where they set a release date and they meet the release date, you know? And so it seems to be a combination of hiring people who don't know what they're doing and, and not leading them very well and hiring people who do know what they're doing and then not listening to them very well. And then they leave. Are you sure and you're so not diagnosing the Trump? This now. isn't the Trump administration we're talking about here, right? It does sound <laughs> like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. I mean, it actually, it's the same hubris, I think. It's the same idea right. that you We know how to do business. You, we're smart. And, and what a couple people have said is that you have, you, people, this is, I've watched this happen so many times where you have someone like Bob Yari, you know, these people, you know, uh, Jim Robinson, these people who come in from outside who, who are successful in another business, who think they know what they're doing, and, and they think that they can change the rules. You know, David Putnam uh, was another example. And, and they can't. There's something about Hollywood that works it's a it's a relationships business, and one of the things people kept saying to me was that was that they didn't the, the Hammonds um, just didn't seem to care about that. Well, I think relationships I mean, you had businesses a great... are based on trust and you know wanting to go back to work with that person again. Right, and that's something you, you have to build. You can't quantify it. You can't you know transform that into a line item. You have to basically be creative and innovate and understand. You had this great quote from an anonymous source in the piece where somebody said, you know, you have to know the rules in order to break them. When you look at a company like A24, I mean, they don't have as much money necessarily as Broad Green, but that was a well-funded outfit. And when they came along, it was a similar kind of thing. It was like, they're untested. What's their plan? You know, how are they going to pull it off? And now they've found a niche, and, and it's different from other companies that are out there, and, and it works. And innovating in, in smart ways in terms of figuring out how to work with DirecTV or or, or you know you know right. the stuff that Netflix and uh, IFC are doing to figure out the the multi-platform release plans that they have. That's that's smart. Um, 
but the, but uh, the production of movies, the financing of movies, someone like Megan Ellison has come in and been very smart about what she's done, and she has good taste, and she backs good filmmakers, and she's building a distribution company now because that is what people who invest a lot of money in films eventually want to do because they see how much of their money goes away to the people who are releasing the films for them. Right. It doesn't mean you can figure out how to do it. Right. I mean, and look, Annapurna is, is, doesn't always like talking to the press or talk to the press at all, but if you well, meet she, those people talk around... talk to you. She talk to you, yeah. do it on the record. Well, but what you get, yeah, and that's what I mean. I mean, when you, what you get when you encounter her crew is that they're cool people who really like movies and that has a trickle-down effect to all the different elements of how something like this has to operate. If you can't hold your own on the, on that front end, I mean, you look at a new company like Neon, which just launched with Tom Quinn and, and Tim Lee's new company, that's a well-funded company. They've got a Chinese backer and SR Media, Jackie Chan's company, and, you know, already in, in the last few weeks we've started to see trailers for things that they're, that they're putting out there, Colossal with Anne Hathaway and... Uh, Anna Lily Amir's Poor's film, The Bad Batch. Like they have a clear aesthetic. I think the trailers are well done. Like there's a certain kind of sensibility they're going for. Professionalism. Yeah, there's but there's just something also that's like yeah, but a they've blend been of in the business or yeah. whatever. They're no, not of course. But it, but the company just arrived and already there, there's a vision to it in which it's not just about. I mean, sure, there's a there's a business model, but there's also a sensibility. And if the sensibility is not clear, I think it's it just ends up affecting in general how people relate to what you're doing or don't relate at all so you know it's a cautionary tale but it's also one that continues to develop i mean i'm excited to see the next terrence malick movie as much as anybody who's curious about terrence malick and so there's song to song yeah which will open south by southwest so who knows you know i'll tell you i'm certainly uh looking for something really great at this time of year still cleansing my palate after sitting through two hours of Matt Damon fighting green aliens in the Great Wall. So you wrote a very bad review. So this is interesting. I went off to the Chinese um, to see uh, the Great Wall, and I look, had looked at the trailer, and I was prepared not to like the movie. Is it, it may just be because you're saying the Man Chinese Theater, right? Because it sounds like talking right. about this the, movie. The, the, big, the big Hollywood. You went to the Chinese. Theater, yeah. The big old-fashioned palace. Mm -hmm. And with a great big screen and 3D and everything else. And and it was, um, you know, Matt Damon was there and Zhang Yimou and, and, I, and the legendary people and everything. And I wanted to like this movie. I wanted to be wowed. And the one thing Zhang Yimou does know how to do is, is work with scale. He's, he's very good at that. And this is a very simple, very... Uh, I, I was fascinated by it because I wanted to see what this, um, you know, legendary has been bought by Wanda and China is now trying to basically compete with Hollywood in terms of being able to, to make movies for the world's wide global market, not just for Asia, but for for us too. You know, so, the problem with this movie is that it looks like that. It doesn't look like a movie. It looks like an attempt to fuse, you know, the elements of a Chinese blockbuster with a familiar American movie star face, but there's not enough movie there. It just felt listless. It's very simple and very 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 lean. And I in a in a weird way at the same time that it's big. It's very big. It's 150 million dollars. And a lot of CGI and a lot, you know, 
literally thousands of extras. I mean, I was, and they're real. They're they're not CGI. The the monsters are CGI. <laughs> the swarming. Yeah, they look like it too. Monsters. They look like CGI. I mean, it's just it's insulting now because it, that should be at least one thing that a movie like this should get right. I mean, the Transformers movie where for no particular reason they were fighting in China in the last act of that bloated movie. At least it was cool to watch these giant robots because the effects are so good. You know, it was like I'm I was kind of bored, but at the same time, I had something to zone out to. Whereas here, I was just like, seriously, like green aliens running around eating people. I mean, it just felt like, you know, Roger Corman could have done this for, you know, a couple grand and it would have been more exciting. But there was something... It's better made than that, than you're letting on. I mean, I was was sort of um, agreeably surprised, to tell you the truth. I mean, I I got a kick out of the Great Wall, out of the the war, you know, Andy Lau and 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 the women swooping down and and the archers and there's a lot of warfare. There's a lot of a lot of people, you know, turning big wheels and catapults. And there were some good like, ideas. It's a Game of Thrones. Well, yeah, I mean, the it's got a Game of Thrones actor in it. The whole idea of, I mean, there's a whole Game of Thrones episode that's very similar where a bunch of people are trying to permeate the wall of this fortress. Pedro and, Pascal, right. Yeah, and, exactly. I mean, it, it's got that in, in its DNA, and yet Game of Thrones did, did that kind of thing in the confines of one episode that also built a lot of tension around individual characters who may or may not live, you know, and I, I didn't feel that kind of connection to anybody in this movie. I agree that the... There are some cool ideas, the 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 crane core or whatever they call them. Yeah, the, I love the, that. The love balloon, that. but they don't they aren't applied in a very interesting way. And to, for the most part, there's no sense of real peril. I mean, when Matt Damon swoops down to take on one of these things, I mean, I just didn't feel like there was anything was cool. surprising about that it. That was pretty cool. He he was fine. I mean, he and Pedro were fine. I mean, I, I, I was worried that, that he would be really bad, you know, that it would be wincingly. This is not a movie where you're just, it's not like a bad clash of the titans or something where you're just wincing with the bad dialogue and it's just horrible and you want to just leave the theater and, and run. It, it, what it is is that it's it's a very simple movie. It, it, there's no layering to it. And I'm just curious to see how it does here. It doesn't look like it's going to open that well. No, and it, I mean, they but there's don't plenty really to see on to. the screen. You know, I mean, there is spectacle there. It's just so it's just so boring. I just was <laughs> I was like an hour after the initial premise was established. I'm like, okay, they, they're still trying to figure out how to like, control the monsters and kill the queen. And... There's this silly thing where they're sort of dangling this one piece of, of um, uh, a magnet to, 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 yeah. swell, to dull the beast. That, that part was pretty silly. I mean, yeah. and that, that kind of thing goes on for a bit. I, I, I thought it was just sort of, there were so many random aspects of a movie like this, too, where it, it just felt like nobody really knew exactly what they were getting themselves into. Like, Willem Dafoe, I'm sure he got a nice paycheck but playing the kind of kooky villain of sorts, trying to smuggle black powder out of out of the fortress. I mean, it's just, there's nothing for him to do in this movie that actually lets a, no. a serious actor yeah. do something legitimate. And with Matt Damon, I, I, I don't know. I mean, do we think that movie stars now just think it's good business to, to 
work he with these Chinese? And... To be a, a, you know, finally, he has to deal with the fact that that the movie, you know, is going to be his worst opening in several, you know, for a while. You know, he he had the, he's coming off of The Martian, so so this is definitely a, a step down. But it's not it's not mortifyingly embarrassing. The movie already made two hundred twenty five million overseas. You know, they'll squeak by. I mean, it's not supposed to be a recouper. It's supposed to be a tentpole, but most of the people at Legendary who made this movie are gone, and Wanda's in charge now, so we'll see what they do. They're all going to learn, basically, what they're doing as they go. It's another case of outsiders trying to learn what Hollywood does well, except, Eric, Hollywood doesn't do it that well yeah, anymore. I know. So, you know, this isn't any worse than the worst kind of Hollywood movie that would have been made with this material. No, I know. It's just unfortunate that that's, that's just the paradigm right now. I mean, do we really want the, the kind of alliance of China and Hollywood to be just yielding more of the same instead of They're some sort of... They're trying to figure it out. Because I think, I actually think Zhang Yimou is a lot better filmmaker than sure. a lot of people, the Hollywood people would hire. And, and I, I'll take the spectacle that was in this movie. I got a kick out of it. I hadn't seen it before. Um, you know, not the monsters, not not that, but but the but the actual battles and 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 the it, it reminded me of an old Sam Spiegel kind of you know sixties you know international spectacle movie like like an El Cid or something like that. That's what it's like, and in, in, in and in its old fashioned qualities, it's probably not going to be commercial here. Yeah, I mean, but I just feel like, so this is a great filmmaker, as, as, as you say, and you look at a movie like House of Flying Daggers, which it has action, but is also grounded in a really complicated story of sorts, and you wonder, well, wouldn't it be great to put a director like that to work with some American actors and do a movie like that? I mean, why? I just get frustrated when it's like the default is something that, needs to play to the masses, so the assumption is that it has to be dumbed down and, and as you say, old-fashioned. Yeah, but Eric, that's the, that, that is the question, you know? And, and, uh, and the question is, you know, House, House of Flying Daggers remained an art film in, in, in the U.S. You know, it didn't translate, it didn't cross over to, like, a wider audience other than, than the, the sophisticated art house audience. But something like um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon did cross over, and that was a combo of a, it was a westernized, it was an Ang Lee westernized Chinese movie, and with a script by James Seamus, and it was a very rare thing. It has, it's, it has not been repeated very often that you, that you can actually do that. So this is, this is a, a step, you know? It's a step in a direction that I'm going to be curious to keep watching. Are you are you still wearing a scarf or something? Because I, I still hear oh, like sorry. a scratching. All right, so that so when the Wanda people were here, the chairman actually was criticizing Hollywood for for making such stupid movies. So he's he's going to have to figure out, as you say, how to make them a little smarter. A little smarter, just a touch. I mean, come on, audiences. There are some people who are totally complicit about th these things, but quality makes a difference. You look at the movies in the Oscar race this year, and it's just you couldn't have a a more stark contrast. I mean, they're probably writing a great wall joke about Matt Damon into somebody's Oscar bit right now, <laughs> you know. But um, I guess we can talk a little bit about the Oscars. I, I feel like there are certain areas that, that 
we can get into that we haven't dug into already you for weeks watched, and weeks and uh, weeks. And reviewed the the uh, animated shorts. I did, yeah, and, and soon enough, I hope to catch up on the other categories. I, I've I've made a habit of watching because I just am a, a, in general try to keep tabs on contemporary animation, and it's a good way to see a very different kind of film that gains uh, exposure through the Oscar nominations. I mean, it doesn't always have the same kind of career impact. For people, but I think it's cool when, you know, for example, last year, uh, Don Hertzfeld got nominated for the second time for for his his last film and things like that where these really great artists who don't necessarily make work that tends to rise up to the same level of exposure get these kinds of nominations. It it can make a a difference for for at least a, a a short period of time in terms of how we how we see them. And um, the, the films are very different, very different styles, different worlds and cultures and sensibilities represented. I wouldn't say that this is the best category we've seen for, for them in, in years, but it's certainly... It's very contemporary. It's very time, contemporary. It's very emo- there's a lot of emotion. It's a, I mean, I don't want to use that word sentimental, which you see as a pejorative, but there's a lot of tearjerkers. There's two uh, sh- shorts that I think are vying for the win. One is the Pixar short, Piper which is just adorable and, and incredibly well made. I mean, if you think about what it requires to, to get the ocean and the bird and the feathers. It's, and all it's that really cute, but it's like cute in service of some really amazing technological amazing storytelling animation. too. Yeah. Uh, so you've got that. And then you've got this, this other movie called Pearl um, from uh, Patrick... Osborne, who was also nominated for for Feast, and it's also a virtual reality movie, but I didn't look at it in that form. Um, so I'm I'm actually curious to see it in that form. But it makes sense, though. Makes it, me cry. It works you know, in the VR. I haven't. Movie. Well, what's cool about that movie? I mean, I I thought it was okay. I, I, what's interesting about it is that it's it's set within the confines of a car, so it makes sense that it would be a 360 degree storytelling experience. It's also you know, it's a it's a music video in, in certain ways. I mean, it's just one True. set to one song, so it's kind of like a limited scope in the way that uh, some of the other films aren't. I mean, if you compare that to Parasiter and Cigarettes, which is 34 minutes long, and it's like big story about a guy trying to get his, his friend techno sober in China... It's it, like, real, it feels like a true memoir, which apparently it is. Yeah, yeah I thought it was okay, a bit redundant in parts, but it, but um, you know, obviously well some done. impressive uh, And Borrowed images. Time is well done too, but much much smaller and more very limited. simple. And and I was sort of amused by the fact that the character of Techno and the character uh, of this guy in Borrowed Time are, 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 are they're very similar. <laughs> they look alike. I, I was struck by that. Yeah, it's interesting how this, this category shook down in that sense. I mean, there is some connectivity there. I mean, Bl- Blind Vaisha is probably the one that's so, most different from everything else. Um, because it's woodcuts. Yeah, really beautiful. flavor. Yeah, yeah, kind of classical feel, but, it, but this amazing allegory of sorts about a woman who sees the world in two ways. One is present, one is sort of the distant future. And... It's got a bit of a clunky finale where it explains what that means, but I, I mean, visually, it, it's quite striking. So there's a nice range here in certain in certain ways. And obviously, as somebody who likes to root for the underdog, it feels a little bit weird to say that I'm rooting for Pixar. But I do think that general overall, it's it's the strongest piece. In I mean, just from the the way that they tell this this story, wordless story, with a very natural arc 
to the technology in place that really makes it look like real birds running around doing this. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's the best accomplishment. If you know anything about animation, it's un- it's as unbelievable as something like the Jungle Book. But they're doing it in close-up. They're do- you know there's a little tiny bird getting washed over by water and being. Um, covered with sand and, and dipping into little shells. It's like the highest possible degree of difficulty. And also the way that they they have the little um, uh, expressions. I mean, it's just brilliantly done. You can't understate the, the power of getting animals in movies right. I mean, there's this documentary, Ketty, that opened last week about cats in, in Istanbul. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's adorable to see cats running around Istanbul, but it's also really well shot with good camera angles and close-ups and without that you just have a gimmick and it's a similar thing with piper it's like it, it would be adorable either way but the fact that it's adorable and pulls you into a story and doesn't even need dialogue to do it is also you know what makes it art in a way that that um, is very satisfying so i hope that you know this kind of a win if that's indeed what what happens makes a difference for you know difference for the kinds of shorts that Pixar tends to produce I mean they've been doing pretty well recently but it's but it's cool to see them continue to innovate and um you know I'd like to see the, the features the on that level that's too that's part of what the role of shorts is for a lot of these these big companies it gives the animators a chance to stretch and try and try other other things um and uh, as far as Oscars go, uh, all right, we're in the closing stretch. I'm doing my um, predictions piece on directors and, and best picture. Ballots right due now. Tuesday at what, um, midnight, something like that? You'll be coming out and we'll be going to cover some parties the Indie Spirits, the BAFTA party, the Women in Film party. But before we get to that, can I just. Wait, take a few steps back. Well, well, when we get into that next week, but but I mean, I, f- I feel like it's worth looking at this looming deadline right now because it's so close. I mean, this is the crunch time of all crunch times, right? Because yeah. by so the next time we record, well it'll be over. If you're watching the, the from all right, from my point of view, um, as I sort of expressed last week, um, if I were just a, a consumer or even someone in the industry looking at uh, the various trades and the various newspapers like the LA Times and the Washington Post and the New York Times and so on, I would just be rolling my eyes with fatigue at this point in terms of reading another story about Denzel Washington or Viola Davis or um, the lyricists behind, you know, La La Land or, or whatever. But that's what's going on. They're still, uh, you know, they're still lobbying hard. This is when the ballots are in the voters' hands. They're due on Tuesday, uh, the 21st at 5 p.m., and, you know, so this is the last stretch. They're trying to influence the, the voters, remind them of what they liked. Uh, you know, we put up a, a, a lovely little clip of La La Land and how they shot that, that uh, some, someone in the crowd, you know, musical number uh, yeah, but, you know, you know, I mean, on the street I, with that's a crane. Funny. That's a know? funny example, though, because I'm thinking... Is there anybody out there who's an Academy voter who really needs a reminder that they liked La La Land? I mean, are there are there really ways at this point in time where you can change someone's mind? I would in those say major categories? that when you look when you look at the um, what they do is they try to the people who work on these movies, the campaigners, they pick art for the consideration ads. They 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 look for uh, certain narratives to be told. So one of the narratives that they're trying to tell for La La Land is to have it not look easy. 
to 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 emphasize the degree of craftsmanship, artfulness, innovation, and 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 skill that should. So I just watched Chazelle. It was really good. It was Charlie Rose. He was talking to. Um, I loved it because they dug into the. He was talking to Tom Tommy uh, Kale, the the director of Hamilton who's been on Charlie Rose, who's very smart and articulate and did a good job of interviewing him as someone who really respects and understands what it was that Chazelle actually accomplished. Um, and he really got into the nuts and bolts of it in a way that I found fascinating. So, so that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make it not look, look easy. And they're also emphasizing in, a, in recognizing that their competition is serious movies with gravitas they're emphasizing it's about art, you know, creativity. It's about art, you know. It's, I just it's have about... a hard time. To, so this is actually kind of interesting. I, I didn't really get into this before, but the, I I talked to some of my NYU students recently, and, and I could tell that there is this, like, hilariously deep-seated debate going on of the whole La La Land versus Moonlight. And, I, and, and that's, like, you know, young film people. And so I, it makes me wonder about... You know the way in which the academy voters are, are split if they're split between let's say those two movies for the most part then well the problem they're not changing I'm their mind out in my piece is that it isn't between those two movies it's between it's probably between la la land and three movies that are splitting that sort of serious i want to send a message to donald trump vote right you know the the idea that the academy wants the world to see them a certain way um, and they're politics. all very angry yep. right now. Yep. Yep. So I would say that's the issue for Moonlight. Moonlight is going to win some things, I'm quite sure, but uh, probably Mahershala Ali and and adapted screenplay. But but it, it's hard to imagine that everyone's going to vote for Moonlight against La La Land. Some people are voting for Hidden Figures, and there's a very strong movement in support of, of Hidden Figures, which is a more crowd pleasing aspirational movie with blacks and whites in it it's not all african-american like fences and uh moonlight it's just not a very good movie if it's that not movie wins good. i'll not be really nearly. upset i'm with you and i don't think it'll get there but i think none of them will get there is the problem <laughs> yeah that's unfortunate in a year in which everyone wants to be super progressive and vote with their politics the politics cancel each other out that could be the uh the general outcome but you know it's not i i'd like la la land I'm okay with La La Land. I just want to go on the record, I'm not a La La Land hater in spite of what people keep saying because I'm not as over the moon about it as some people. I feel like that... You and like, I are uh, more or less the same. Yeah, I, I admire surprisingly it Surprisingly so. I like it a lot. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's perfect, you know? So we shall see. And next week we'll dig more into what we anticipate the weekend will be like. We'll have... Uh, we'll be able to talk face-to-face -face and, and, and look ahead to the parties we're going to sneak into and the Spirit Awards, which sometimes is even more exciting than the Oscars and all kinds of other good stuff. So until then, Anne, have a safe weekend and uh, rest up because the, the final stretch is, is just around the corner. Okay, bye, Anne. So to speak. <laughs>